Good morning, everyone. If you would, please find your seat so that we may begin. It is the 10 o'clock hour, and it is time for our King Convocation. Please take your seats and be prepared for a video that we'll show in just a few moments. But we want you to see it, and we want to start it with everyone ready. And so please do come in, find your seats. If there is a seat near you, please slide in so that people can have that. There are additional chairs down here as well. They will be putting additional chairs out along the backs. And there are still some seats on the bottom as well. So in the next minute or so, ITS will begin our video and King Convocation will have begun. Now that he is safely dead, let us praise him. Build monuments to his glory, sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes, for they cannot rise to challenge the images that we might craft from their lives. It is easier to build monuments than to build a better world. So now that he is safely dead, we with eased consciences will teach our children that he was a great man, knowing that the cause for which he lived is still a cause, and the dream for which he died is still a dream, a dead man's dream. Good morning again, everyone, and welcome to King Convocation 2019. I am Dr. LaKendra Hardware, and I'm the Associate Director of Student Life for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And I have the honor of being this year's featured speaker, and I'll be joined by two of our students. But before we get to that, I do want to take a moment to thank Dr. Regina for sharing that poem. I would like to also thank my colleague, David Kendall, Dave Kendall, for putting together that video. When we met to talk about the video, I shared our theme, I shared our vision, and we thought about what would we leave with you how could we enter today and set the tone for where we want it to go? King, the man, the motive, the movement, who he was and still is, who he was, who he is, why he did what he did. And so this is where we find ourselves on today. As our MLK committee was planning and thinking about where to go for this year, we came with a twist on how to do this. And the twist was to recast the vision of King celebration here. Why the need to recast? Because I feel like too often we have bits and pieces of the story, but don't really have a full vision or view. 
To many, this happened so very long ago. It's been 51 years since his life was taken from him as he stood on the front lines of justice. 1968, April the 4th. It was only a few years ago that I really put that date in context with my own self. Seemed like a long time ago, such a long time ago. And then I put it in the context with my age and the year that I was born. I was born in 1973. That was merely five years before I entered this world. And to be reminded that that's where our country was, that those pictures that you saw, those images that you saw, weren't as far back for me and for many, some in the room, they are witnesses to seeing them play out on television, not as recordings. And so we come to recast the vision for the King Celebration here at Goshen College. And we are grateful for the opportunity to do so. Third Monday in January, known and observed nationally as the National Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan in 1983. Many don't know that in 1969, January of 1969, Mrs. King really began the very first celebration honoring Dr. King. And it wouldn't be until 1983 that it would be put into legislation. And yet it would be another three years, 1986, before the very first national, well, at least the observance was there. Because it would not be until 2000 that every state would actually enact the national Martin Luther King Day. A lot happened to get us to that place. King said once that as long as poverty, injustice, and equality persist, none of us can truly rest. I stand before you and I think about that. How well are you resting in 2019? Are things looking good for you and yours? Or are you seeing the injustices around? Things that require us to speak out and to say more. The King Center in Atlanta, the birthplace and hometown of Dr. King, is actually known as the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. We typically just shorten that to the King Center. It was established in 1968 by Mrs. King in order to educate the world on the life legacy and teachings of Dr. King. It was set to inspire new generations to carry forth his unfinished work. It was set to strengthen causes and empower change makers who are continuing his efforts today. I've got news for you on this very cold morning. There is unfinished work for us all. And so I have an opening invitation to you to do something with the work that still needs to be done. 
The life of Dr. King is out there for everyone to research. And in fact, I feel like at some point, I'm going to just spend more time diving into his books and stories about his life and stories about his teachings and the speeches. But I'll give you a summary. You may hear it again as Kara tells us a little bit about the man, but I needed you to understand this man that we stand to honor on today, a Morehouse graduate. Morehouse is an HBCU, a historically black college and university located in Atlanta. It is an all-male insti all institution. It is a very prestigious community. Dr. King graduated at 19 with his BA in sociology. He would go on to graduate from Crozier Theological Seminary in 1951 with his Bachelor of Divinity. In 53, he would marry Coretta Scott. In 54, he was called to pastor. The only church Dr. King actually pastored was located in Montgomery, Alabama, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, now called Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church. In 55, he would go on to have his first child, Yolanda. He would also have three more children after that, Martin Luther King III, Dexter, and Bernice. In 1955, this young pastor, new to his church, was called upon to be a figurehead, a leader. Go get the, the new pastor down at Dexter Avenue. I think he can help us lead this charge. And the Montgomery bus boycott had a leader. He will go on to do many, many things over the course of the next 12 years and four months for social justice and change. That's who he is, that's who he was. For many of us, he is only a day, a day in January that we pause and we think about and we get off, yay, a holiday. But there is a, at least one city in our country whose memory whose honoring of King is felt and lived every day. The city where he took his last breath. The story goes that Dr. King's last words on the balcony before he was shot were to a musician scheduled to play that evening at the event that they were going to. Ben Branch. And they say that Dr. King said to him, and I want to pull the words out to say it right. This is Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was a young civil rights leader at the time. He says, Dr. King said to him, Ben, Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. The last words he would ever speak on April the 4th, 1968, in a city in the South called Memphis, Tennessee. I've been there several times, but I only know the story told through pictures. We have one with us today who knows the story, lived and breathed as her very own hometown. Terry Kinsey is a sophomore, and she is here to share King, the man. Let us welcome Tara. Hi, everyone. 
My name is Tara, and I'm a sophomore majoring in graphic design. Um, I'm involved with the student ministry team as well as a member on the MLK committee, and I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, um, the city where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it is, because while the world mourned his death and eventually moved on, Memphis never did. And Memphis to this day has not been able to recover from the loss of King. So my hope is to not only share more about who Dr. King was as a person, but about the impact he had on my city. 90 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. King was born as Michael King Jr. This was the name he was referred to as from 1929, the year of his birth, to 1934, the year of his father's rebirth. Reverend Michael King Sr., his church sent him on a world world whirlwind trip in um, 1934. He traveled to Tanzania, Egypt, Rome, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Berlin. It was in Berlin, Germany, where he realized his true calling to justice. He arrived a year after Adolf Hitler had become chancellor and saw the rise of Nazi Germany. While on tour of the country, he learned, that he learned of Martin Luther, a German monk and theologian, Luther, who nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, shook the world over 500 years ago with the wake of Protestantism by standing up for his own beliefs and challenging the way that the church practiced theirs. In the midst of witnessing injustice in a country that was not his own, um, Michael King Sr. was so inspired by the original Martin Luther that he would then claim the name for himself. And after returning home from Germany, Reverend Michael King Sr. declared to his congregation that he and his son would be further known to as Michael, Martin Luther King from then on. There were many things that shaped Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his understanding of worldly discrimination. He was born into a relatively financially stable household, and as a result, he would later come to understand that he wouldn't face the same issues regarding race that everyone else did. Um, when he was young, he had white friends, but he would notice that when the school year started, his friends would go to different schools and they weren't allowed to play with him during the year. He was curious as to why this was, so his parents explained to him the history of slavery and segregation to him, and they encouraged him to notice and respond to injustice. Due to his upbringing, personal experiences with segregation, and his understanding of the unfair unbalances of social class, he grew a passion for activism a passion that would follow him through many sermons, marches, strikes, and protests, and a passion that would lead him to Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is a part of the South, so while it did take part in the negative history of our country, it is still rooted in social justice dating back to the 1830s. Um, it was once a departure point for the Native Americans on the Trail of Tears, and it aided in saving several slaves in the Underground Railroad, having one of the two Eastern Termini routed to California. Culturally, Memphis had musical significance as well. It is known for jazz and rock and roll, with artists like B.B. King, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and many more finding their homes in Memphis. So 
What was it that brought Dr. King to Memphis? In less than a week, Dr. King would make two trips to Memphis. The first time being March 28th, 1968. As soon as he entered the city, he was participating in a march that was already in pursuit, led by African-American sanitation workers who were on strike for unfair wages and dangerous working conditions. However, this visit was cut short due to the march ending in violence. Despite him having to abruptly leave, he did not give up on the city. A week later, on April 3rd, he returned to Memphis in hopes of leading a more successful march. And he almost didn't make it due to his flight being delayed by a bomb threat. And even thinking about this moment shows how brave and outstanding of a leader he was. His life was threatened within one week by one city. Yet he returned anyway because he knew how much the city needed him. And unfortunately, Dr. King would never get to lead that successful march. The night Dr. King arrived to Memphis, he gave his final speech known as the I've Been to the Mountaintop Address. The next day, on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was shot while standing on the balcony outside of room 306 at the Lorraine Motel where he stayed, where he often stayed. Sadness ensued the nation as the morning stages of Dr. King's life began. His assassination led to widespread uproar, causing the greatest wave of social unrest that the U.S. had experienced since the Civil War. Riots broke out all over the country, and these riots are now referred to as the King's Assassination Riots or the Holy Week Uprising. And when I went back home um, over break, I interviewed a few of my family members who had been in the city at the time of his death, and to quote my grandfather, he said Memphis was mad. The man who was finally going to bring justice to our nation was viciously murdered and everybody wanted revenge. There was no specific person they could take it out on, take out their anger on, so they took it out on the city. And usually you'll hear their metaphor going up in flames to describe an extremely bad situation that seemingly continues to get worse. So I wanted to be understand, understood that while I do mean what I'm about to say figuratively or metaphorically, I also mean it literally. When riots began to dominate the city, Memphis literally went up into flames. The burning of buildings alone resulted in $400,000 in losses. And this is not including vandalism and destruction of buildings that didn't result in fires. Still, the city has yet to fully recover economically from what took place nearly 51 years ago in 1968. Anyone who lives there and has experienced the aftermath of what happened will tell you, Memphis still has a long way to go. As a result of the fires, many were displaced from their businesses and homes. The Claiborne homes, the largest housing projects in the city, became home to many of those people. The money to cover the damages of the riots refused to go to black neighborhoods. And for years to follow, there would be continuous strikes against the city for multiple social injustices. I can't find record of the exact year, but change didn't begin to happen in black neighborhoods in Memphis until around 2010 or 2011, when the locally legendary Claiborne Homes housing projects got torn down. So why do we celebrate Dr. King? 
Because he preached and lived a life of justice and peace, he remained faithful in his word to serve the Lord in this country by sacrificing his life on a daily basis. And because he raised the expectation for what equality and love is meant to look like in this country. Memphis, my city, is living in his legacy. Memphis isn't celebrating him one day out of the year. It's celebrating him every day, and it's mourning him every day. And to this day, it's still trying to move forward. It's odd how many of the world's heroes are slain or exiled or put in prison because their power poses a threat and because they speak of things that nobody else wants to. Too many of our nation's heroes lose their lives for rational thinking. So I guess dead men really do make convenient heroes. Because Dr. King died for wanting me and you to be able to live a life of justice, peace, equity, and love. Why does it feel as though the only way to see change is by seeing someone die? It doesn't have to be that way. I hope that we can continue to notice and respond to injustice. And I hope to live in a world that is one day able to wake up and open its eyes to all forms of discrimination. I hope that one day I can be who I want, you can be who you want, everyone can live in harmony, and no one has to die. Thank you. Tara has given us some words to consider, to think about, a deeper understanding of the experience. I wanna share just for a moment how this came to be. As we were talking about King or Martin Luther King uh, or Dr. King or the Reverend Dr. King, we were really talking about how we referred to him. And Tara shared that um, he, he wasn't just King. And at, at an earlier, um, pass at her speech, that was additional information she had put in there that he always was called Dr. Martin Luther King or even the Reverend Doctor. And so there's, there's a fullness of really honoring him and lifting him up and not just calling him Martin or calling him um, uh, Martin Luther King or MLK. So when we talked about what to talk about, when we were discussing what to make as the topics for the theme, uh, that was something that came from Tara. As a, as a resident of Memphis, she wanted to make sure that she offered us something that was very unique. I've been to Memphis now at least four times, maybe five, leading a civil rights tour. And every time I go, I go to the Lorraine Motel, which is also known as the National Civil Rights Museum. And I walk through those spaces and I see the pictures, the photos, I sit on the bus, a life-size bus that has a model of Rosa Parks sitting in it. And I go to the back and I go into the counters where it says colored and white. And I see the people sitting there and I see the jeers from some of the other clay characters that are around, life-size. And I'm forever impacted, fresh every time. I see something new. I cry new tears. <sighs> I heave deeper sighs. 
And I wonder, what was it about this journey that kept King going and those who were living in the, in the movement with him? A lot of people hear that Dr. King was about nonviolent social change. And people think, well, he just never got mad. <laughs> he never got upset. He was just a cool dude. As cool as he might have been, brilliant, by the way, just brilliant with how he said much with his words and his speeches. Dr. King actually experienced a range of emotions and reactions to racism and injustice in his life. Tara shared the incident where he, he was playing with a friend, the shop owner, a white shop owner in his neighborhood where he grew up, which would have been a black neighborhood. A white shop owner had a son and they were friends, played all, all the time until they were six. And Martin, as he was known, went to the black school and his friend went to the white school. And the friend's father decided that he didn't want them playing together anymore. And six-year-old Martin now had a visceral response to injustice, discrimination, and segregation. This wasn't about others, this was his friend and he was now told they could not be because of the color of skin. He spent much of his life talking about, dealing with, and advocating for change, but he also had resentment at some point in his life about the things that were going on. And specifically, he said resentment against whites because of the racial humiliation that was endured by his family, his friends and neighbors in the segregated South. This was early Martin, very much like yourselves just trying to sort things out and live. Not up to the name of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but just trying to be a young man living his life and seeing things go wrong. Much like we do today when we turn on a television, scroll past the Twitter feed, see a photo on Facebook. I know you guys don't do as much Facebook. That's the old people now. Instagram, Snapchat, I'm with it. <laughs> As a junior in high school, Martin received a special award and he and a teacher took a bus trip to go and receive this award. And on the bus, some whites needed to sit and the bus driver demanded that Martin get up and give his seat. Well, you know Martin, he was nonviolent. But Martin in high school as a junior said no and said he wasn't getting up. Not only did he say he wasn't getting up, but he was very upset about it. He refused the order of the white bus driver and was not budging until his teacher, who was also accompanying him, leaned in and said that if he did not do this, that he would be breaking the law. So Martin got up, but let's just say Martin wasn't happy about it. In fact, he would later go on to say this moment was the angriest he had ever been in his entire life. Injustice sits with us, takes root, and can also spark change. He would go on to be arrested 30 times 
Many internet sites say 29 times, but the King Center, and I'm gonna go with the King Center's number. They did establish it, it is his family. They said he was arrested 30 times. His 13th arrest produced a little document you might have heard of. This arrest was in Birmingham, Alabama. He sat within a jail cell and used scraps of paper to write out the letter from Birmingham jail. This letter would call on the movement to pursue legal channels for social change. The movement, why is he doing what he's doing? Dr. King was involved in so many pieces, and in order for me to get the big picture to, that I could break this down to you, and I wasn't just spitting numbers at you and spitting names at you, which I can, but I want you to understand that it didn't matter if he was participating or leading the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, if he was organizing the 1963 Birmingham campaign. You do remember what happened in Birmingham at a church called 16th Street Baptist Church. Four little girls were in the bathroom before Sunday school and were bombed. But he would go on to lead changes. He would participate in the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. He would be active in the 1965 Selma voting movement, the voting rights movement. You might have seen something called the Bloody Sunday when they attempted to march and were literally beaten on the bridge in Selma. Having ventured that way and stood on the bridge, no moment can take away the images that the media has placed in our mind for me. Dr. King would also be involved in the Chicago open housing movement of 1966. Oh, and by the way, right around 1964, he won a little thing called the Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. King was busy. He would go on in 67, actually one year to the date before he took his last breath. He would publicly oppose the Vietnam War and a little piece called, the, called Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. In 68, he was active in the Poor People's Campaign. Why am I giving you all these things? To tell you that the range was wide for what he did. And you might say, well, what was it that he did? Why did he do what he did? How did he do what he did? The King Center shares what they call the King philosophy. This is the basis of what King did in all of his work. The King philosophy composed of these four quadrants, the triple evils, the six principles of nonviolence, the six steps of nonviolent social change, and the beloved community. These were all pieces of what Dr. King did in his everyday life. I've got work to do to study up on these, but I want to give you at least a snapshot of what they were. The triple evils as King saw them were poverty, racism, and militarism. 
King says to work against the triple evils, develop a nonviolent frame of mind, which is B, and I've labeled them A, B, C, and D, and the Kingian model for social action outlined in C. The triple evils. He said, when we work to remedy one evil, we affect all evils. It was named such because it represented forms of violence that exist in a vicious cycle. They were interrelated, poverty, racism, militarism. They were all inclusive barriers to being able to live in the beloved community. You might think, well, that was then. We've come a long way. I want to remind you that some progress is not ultimate progress for all. And I want to help put it in context for you. When you think of poverty, think of these things, unemployment, homelessness, hunger, malnutrition, illiteracy, infant mortality, slums. Right, because we've eradicated all of those, right? No, because there's still work to do. When you think of racism, think of prejudice, think of apartheid, think of ethnic conflict, anti-Semitism, think of sexism and homophobia. Because we've eradicated all of those, right? No, because there's still work to do. When you think of militarism, think of war, but also think of domestic violence, rape, terrorism, human trafficking, media violence, drugs, child abuse, and violent crimes because we've eradicated all of them, right? No, because there's still work to do. Dr. King says that to work on one, in order to affect one or change one, you must work on them all. And so there is still work for us to do. The first two of the six principles of nonviolence are that nonviolence is both a way of life for courageous people but it also seeks to win friendship and understanding. If you're gonna do the work of nonviolence, peacemaking, you've gotta understand a little bit about it. Not only is it those two things, but it also seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Injustice, not people. Injustice, not people. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Well, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to have to suffer to teach other people that we need to transform. I think history has done enough of that. Nonviolence is not just those four things, but it also goes on to say it chooses love, not hate. And I really can't underscore this enough because it is all too often in our lives that we choose hate when we should just be choosing love. This is my own motto. If you don't love people, if, if you can't be nice or you can't not hate, just leave people alone. If you really can, just leave people alone. Rather than walk into a situation with hate, just walk away. You do not have to act on the hate that, so, that society and culture is steeping richly. I got a little excited. The sixth principle is that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. It's a little faith believing in that for me. The six steps of nonviolent social change, and I put them all on one because I wanted you to see them information, 
education, personal commitment, discussion or negotiation, direct action, and reconciliation. A thing about these is that people think of them as steps, but really they are more processes and cycles, and they work and depend on the other five. So in order for me to have education, they still have some components of the other five steps. The fourth part of the King philosophy is this, the beloved community, which was our theme last year. The beloved community is a term that was popularized by King, but it was coined earlier by philosopher theologian Josiah Royce, who also founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Dr. King was also a member of that. Dr. King invested a deeper meaning into it. He did not feel that this was the lambs and the lion lying down in, in, in harmony right, in this ideal of harmony. But rather, he said, it is a realistic, achievable goal that we can attain by critical mass of people who are committed to and trained in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence. In other words, we can do it. It's going to take work because there's still work to do. As you can see from the slide, core value of this is agape love. And agape love is the love of God operating in human hearts. Again, if you can't love them, at least if you can't express the love, just leave them alone. Don't respond in hate. Justice is indivisible. In other words, it is for all people, not just any one oppressed people or group. I love the fact that I'm a black woman. I love black people. I love my culture, but I can't be who I am if I see injustice being done in other places, in other cultures, be it race, religion, sexuality, or gender. Justice is indivisible. It's not just about me. And I hate to let you know, it's also not just about you. Conflict is inevitable. We are human. It happens but conflict does not need to end or erupt in violence. The fourth part is that peaceful resolution is possible with reconciliation and mutual commitment to nonviolence. You probably saw nonviolence several times in this. It really is a process. It is something that requires us to do work. So why, why was Dr. King moved to action? What were his motives? These are some of them. The crisis of racism was and is both too urgent and the current system was and is too entrenched. The fundamental changes in political and economic life of the nation. He was also there to have a desire, or excuse me, he was also moved to have a desire to see the redistribution of resources in order to correct racial and economic justice. He was there to fight the laws of Jim Crow. And if you've never lived in the South or heard this phrase, please look it up. My own mom says that she remembers seeing those signs, whites only and colored. And I've seen them, but I've only seen them in the context of a museum. And yet I've experienced the remnant, the lasting tinge of that very law, just by living and breathing in this place called America. 
Dr. King was there to protest Jim Crow laws and the inhumane treatment of blacks in the South. He was there to help deal with racial discrimination in voting and housing. He was working to improve the inequitable working conditions based on race. It's not often said, but when Dr. King went to Memphis, he was there to help the black sanitation workers, the, trash, the truck drivers, the trash truck drivers. What had happened was two black trash workers or sanitation workers were crushed to death in the back of their equipment when they got into it to get out of the shelter or to take shelter from the rain. This had happened one other time. And they were saying that the equipment that they were given was faulty and no one was trying to fix it. And so they were losing lives. But not only that, let's just say I went to work and my friend Corey went to work. And I don't know, this is Corey right here on this, in the, on this front row. She's probably like, don't use me as an illustration. <laughs> I am a black person, Corey is white. If we both went to work for two hours and were sent home because it rained, I got paid for two hours. Corey got paid for a full day. Inequitable working conditions. Sorry, Corey. He was also there to deal with jobs and freedom, opposition to the Vietnam War. He was working for voting rights. Dr. King once said in song, as a 10-year-old at the 1939 Atlanta premiere of Gone with the Wind, he sang a song with his church choir, and the words to the song were this, I want to be more and more like Jesus. If there's ever one that gave us a model for how to move things and change things and be with people and love people and share with people, it indeed is the person of Christ. And Dr. King, even as a young person, wanted to do what he could to model that. There are many reasons that he did why he did, but it boils right down to this. Injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Our next speaker is Clinton Strobel, a senior here at Goshen College. And Clinton is going to help us hear about King, the movement. To President Stoltzfus, to the MLK Day Committee, to Goshen College faculty, staff, and to you students, good morning. I am Clinton Strobel, and this is my fourth year here at Goshen College. And I would like to first thank the ML Day, ML Day, excuse me, MLK Day Committee for allowing me to speak before you today. I believe there is no ability more liberating than the one to speak, and I'm honored to be given an opportunity to do that in front of you. This being said, I'll finish introducing myself. As a fourth year student, I will be graduating in April with a bachelor's degree in peace, justice, and conflict studies. 
and I am also a lifetime member of the Goshen College baseball team, my boys. <laughs> Thank you. I think it is important to acknowledge that I am one of you because I don't want to feel like I am speaking at you or telling you about yourself. Rather, I am here because this is a topic. This is a time and we are speaking about a man that I am passionate about and would love an opportunity to share this passion with you. I think this is one of the many reasons why convocations at Goshen College are such a great opportunity because you can say things that have power. You can present ideas and questions and thoughts through a convocation that otherwise would not yield the same attention. And it is within these spaces that you can be who you want to be. You can say what you want to say and you can change the world. I'll be clear, I'm not here to attack you, but I'm here to encourage and to present ideas that may or may not share the same power in other spaces. Today is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and there are not many things I can say that will appropriately characterize his leadership qualities nor his impact on our world. But we must not go a second further without thinking about his message and how it translates into our daily lives. In a 1968 speech in which he is reflecting on the civil rights movement, he says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. In the beginning of this convocation, we sat in silence. I want you to remember what it felt like, empty, alone, maybe even scary. If you sit long enough, it's as though the silence gets louder and your ears start to ring and you feel your world closing in on you. Our silence is dangerous. Without using our ability to speak, justice cannot be found and our truths will never be heard. Silence is the residue of our fear. It is your truth tucked underneath the stage of doubt and insecurity. It is a juxtaposition of ability and destiny making it so that your silence is all you have left to give. But listen, we are made with the voice so that we can shout to the stars that we are here. And we were made with a mind capable of imagining a world different than this one. And we were made with hands and feet and a mouth so that only we can have the ability to manifest our own destiny. And because of this truth, we must not allow our silence to derail us. So how do we do this? Well, I believe in uncomfortable spaces, we have the ability to change the world. I think it is too easy to spend all of our time with people who think and act and look just like us. In choosing to not be uncomfortable, we are choosing to accept our reality. In many spaces, this is definitely okay. I am in no position to vindicate anybody who values their safe space. I think it's important for individuals, for our individual mental capacity to have space and to have moments in which we can deflate and relax. But I also believe that by engaging in difficult conversations about difficult topics, we will better understand our mutual humanity. We need one another in many obvious ways, but in many inadvertent ways also. In discovering our mutual humanity, we overcome our silence. We overcome the fear of not being heard. It is in uncomfortable spaces that the most meaningful relationships are built and the most powerful movements began, such as the civil rights movement. 
The civil rights movement, amongst others, is considered a modern day example of the power of nonviolent social action. However, in thinking about procedural aspects of this time period, we must acknowledge that it is defined by despair. Leaders like Medgar Evers and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were murdered because of how difficult of a conversation this was. But this did not and cannot deter us. And I do say us for a particular reason. The civil rights movement was primarily led by people our age, college students, our age. It is at our age that we are old enough to comprehend the world and still young enough to question it as our reality. Groups like the Black Panthers, the Freedom Riders, and the Greensboro Four were groups of college students who were informed enough about social systems and how they develop, but brave enough to challenge them. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to challenge you to be the leaders of your own movement. Be the difference that you want to see in the world. It is only from our mouths can we define our destiny, and in this truth is our power. We must not wait until we are smart enough or rich enough or stable enough because this moment will never, ever come. I believe that there is never going to be a good time to have a bad time, but that does not mean that good times will never come. It is only by breaking our silence will we have the ability to manifest our destiny and live our life on our own terms. Today, I leave you all with one thing. Think critically about your truth. And in that criticism, find your voice. My name's Clinton Strobel. Thank you so much for having me. And the speakers took a deep breath, <sighs> right? Amen. So we've come to the point where we're about to put this back in your hands. We've done our job today. We've recast the vision. We've recast why we celebrate Dr. King. We honor his legacy. We honor his life. We acknowledge that there is still work to do. And now we invite you to participate in the work. Yesterday's sermon, I shared some words about movement, and I used Christ as this ultimate model of movement. But in order to do so, I defined what movement was. It was shifting things from where they are to where they can best be. It's doing something to make things better. But it's not just doing something, it's doing your best in order for others to be and have and do better. I've got to do my best because when I do my best, it enables someone other than me to do better. And so, yes, we're still in the same place, the sanctuary. In the same space, I offered the same challenge on yesterday, and I want to offer that challenge to you. In 2019, will you do your best in order for others to be better? 
Now I realize that we may not all think alike, have the same beliefs. We may not all politically align or religiously align. We may not all identify or agree with how others identify in their sexual identity or gender identity. But the reality is you don't have to agree, you do have to respect. You do have to live out this thing called life in such a way that what you do and what you say does not cause detriment to someone else. And whether that's a casual moment of me ignoring someone or, or dismissing someone or taking a moment to speak against someone or if it's something larger. And so you may be saying, well, what are we supposed to do about this? We want our convocation credit. We're going to come back and do something else. And what is it that you want us to do? I can't answer that question for you. All I can do is offer you the same challenge that Dr. King offered America and the world, humanity. I want to take the moment to say thank you to everyone who has been a part of this experience. It is not over for us. We still have some more things to come. But I thank each of you for participating with us, for listening. And even when it was uncomfortable, for having the moment of uncomfortableness or discomfort. I should have said discomfort. Sometimes you just go with the other word. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Some, just go with the simple word, discomfort. <laughs> we have a couple of announcements we're going to pull up and put up and let you know what our other events are coming up. So we still have left two breakout sessions. Now, before I say this, I want to ask, we have plenty of time. We gave plenty of time. It is nowhere near the 1145 time we thought we would stop. So I just ask that everyone would stay and hear all of the announcements, and then we will dismiss at the end of that. This afternoon, please join us in the Koinonia room from 215 to 345 for breakout session A. It is merely a processing space, a time to come and gather with others and talk and dialogue and kind of think about where you are as you have participated with us. Perhaps you participated in the King Coffee House last night, or you're participating now in the convocation, or maybe you were at the sermon, and maybe you want to help us hear what is going on in our thoughts as a community. Our second breakout session, also offered at the same time, is me in the movement, me in the movement. The reality is there's still unfinished work to do. We all can do something. We all can up our game, if you will. We can do our best in order for others to have, be, and do better. And so that will be in the North Fellowship Hall, again from 215 to 345. Both breakout sessions are offered at the same time, and so you will have to make a choice which one you will go to, and you will be able to get convocation credit for that as well. You'll get one credit for attending that. So that's our schedule for this afternoon. Tonight, we have our very final piece, and that is a prayer vigil. Originally, we wanted to do this outside, and I want to paint the picture for you, because there will be no candles inside the building. Amen. <laughs> this is how you stay employed. Amen. <laughs> Did you? Amen. Come on. Amen. So it will be a prayer vigil instead of a candlelight prayer vigil. But the vision was this, that as the sun sets, 
6.30, it starts to get dark. It's nice and dark. That you would see candles. And our student ministry team and our black student union are working on this and have worked on this for us. But that the light would pass from one person to the other. Out here in Shroud Plaza, amen, right? I had to, I had to locate myself. And it would pass, the light would pass, and some words would be shared. And you would see the light in the dark. You would see the light spread and get brighter and brighter until we all were standing, surrounded by darkness, but holding the light. And we would share in the candlelight vigil together, and then we would process into a building of learning and education, still with our candles lit till we got to the door and that's when we would extinguish them. And so we're still doing the vigil, but I want you to hold the mindset of what that image would look like. We invite you to join us at 6.30 p.m. in the Intercultural Student Space, located in WISE 108B. We thank our BSU, Black Student Union, and our SMT for working on that, and that's our student ministry team, for working on that together for us. That will be our final event of King Celebration 2019. And so it is up to me to say some thank yous. I want to say first and foremost thank you again to the King Coffee House Committee that worked on that, to Dr. Jessica Baldanzi, to Tara Kinsey, and to Aaliyah Bird, and to our wonderful students who shared and poured out, to Dr. Ann Hostetler, who um, coordinated our guest artist, our guest poet, Tiana Clark. Let's give them a hand clap of appreciation and celebration. I would also like to thank the College Mennonite Church and their staff for offering me an opportunity to share on yesterday. It was really a blessing to share and to just be with one another and share the message of God with them. And so I'm grateful to them for the extension or the invitation. I could not have gotten to this point to stand before you and say anything by myself. I did not do it alone. We had a committee and at this time, I'm going to ask our committee members that are present in the room to please stand if you are present Corey, Dr. Regina, Tara, if Whitney is here. This was our committee that worked and met regularly. I asked them to stand because that's not very many people. It's not a lot of people, but it was a lot of thinking, a lot of prayerful reflection, a lot of trying to create a program that met the goals of recasting the vision, but also offered us something to chew on as we go forward. So thank you again to the MLK committee. To our president, Dr. Rebecca, I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand and to share, to have gifted us with the space the platform, the resources to make this happen, and just for your offering uh, words that kicked us off on Wednesday with our special convocation, so thank you to, to you for that. To our dean, 
I saw him, there he is, to my dean. Dean Hiberto Perez, thank you so much. Um, this has been a, a wonderful opportunity for me because I always felt the support of this man right here for going forth and changing up things. Wait, we're gonna change it up a little bit? Do what you need to. And he really gave us the freedom to do that. And I don't know about you, but I need you to understand for me how freeing that was to be able to go into this and really say, God, what's the vision? And know that there was support for that. So thank you so much. To our lovely ASL interpreter, Miss Mia Engel, thank you so much. She did it unscripted, bless her heart, amen. So thank you so much for that. To our ITS media staff, thank you for making sure everything happened all weekend and last Wednesday as well for us. Thank you for all that you have done. To AVI, to our events office, and to Kamar, we thank you for helping us get to this space. I generally should not have started thanking people because I always wonder if there's someone that I'm forgetting. If I have left you off and you have offered support, please charge it not to my heart, but merely to the point of I shouldn't have started listing off all the names in the first place. <laughs> But most importantly, thank you to you all for participating with us. And at this point, I would like to ask you all to stand. And I would like to close us in a word of prayer. Gracious God, for the time that we have shared, for the messages that we have created, for the experiences that we have been in. We ask that you would be with us, that you would continue to help cultivate a society that looks more and more like you, that is more just, more kind, more patient, more caring. We ask that you would continue to equip us with the words and the tools to be better as a society and to do our best in everything for the work that is still ahead that must be done. Show us how to walk into those spaces and to do new things. Show us how to help, help add to a more just society, a peaceful society, building the beloved community. We ask this needing your strength, your guidance, your wisdom, your light. We ask this in Jesus' name. As we say together, amen. amen. This is concluding our convocation. You are released to lunch, and we hope to see you back at 215 in the Cornania Room or the North Fellowship Hall.